The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Well, good morning, church. My name is Kelly. Like I said earlier, I'm one of the pastors here, and I am um, graced with the privilege of sharing the Word of God with you today. Now, last week, it was the first of the, of the year, and uh, we had John Butts, our, our wonderful elder and friend, uh, who shared with us about his experience sharing the gospel with loads of people in Ethiopia. And some people responded favorably and received the good news with faith, and others responded less favorably, delaying the decision till later or rejecting the good news of Jesus altogether. I thought that was really helpful for us to hear the different responses that people had. And in their culture, a decision to follow Jesus and to turn from their previous views on the deity that they had once believed in or the animist religion that they once believed or a completely different religion altogether, their decision to revoke those views uh, can come with a very real consequences that we often don't see here in America. We're privileged in our nation to receive very little resistance from those around us, at least in comparison, when we trust in Jesus. Most people who convert to Christianity in our own culture can genuinely change most of their lives to align with Christ, and they wouldn't have their lives threatened necessarily. But it's a different story in other countries. I, I went to Israel this fall. Uh, the man who drove our bus was a Christ follower, and he was also an Arab in Israel. The consequence of his conversion is this unfortunate isolation from almost everyone. The Jews don't like him because he's ethnically Arab, and the Arabs don't like him because he's Christian, and so he finds himself when he trusted in Jesus Christ, isolated from everybody he knew. And when he became a believer, his, his wife, his, her family threatened him with weapons. And even though his wife ended up staying with him, she doesn't even sleep in the same bed as him. And he has to be very, very careful about how he shares the gospel with the people around him because he genuinely could be murdered. This is the experience of some people and I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that his faith is real. He is no nominal Christian, no nominal believer. When he tells the story of his conversion, you, you can't help but be completely enthralled in the story because it's miraculous and it's courageous. And uh, I just remember sitting in the car with him as he told me. I got there earlier before everyone else, and he's driving just crazy through Jerusalem. And I'm staring at him while trying to look, look ahead and see what was going on. But I can't help but be enthralled because this man had such passion in the face of adversity. But here in America, it's different. Like I said, the freedom of religion that we have is a gift for sure but it has some side effects for us that we need to be aware of. 
we don't get the kind of pushback that other societies receive with a conversion of faith. So the side effect of that is that it's easy to be a nominal believer, a lukewarm Christian, a person who claims to be a Christian but has, had ve- has felt very little resistance to test their faith. So it's easy to go to church and check off that box on a Sunday without any consequence to your life whatsoever. A further side effect of that is that it's for the nominal believer or nominal Christian who finally reads the obligations that Scripture puts on Christians, it can feel like a foreign religion to them, even oppressive maybe because of the obligations. Because we don't like obligations, just naturally, as people, we don't like obligations, especially the ones that that cost us something or that demand we delay our gratification. We don't like to be told what to do with our relationships and our belongings and our entire lives, including our money. We don't like to be told that we can't indulge in certain practices that are normal, that are considered normal for other people. And we don't like to be told that we can't believe whatever we want to believe about Jesus and his message and that we can't ignore the obligations that Jesus and God puts on us. The nominal believer who finally reads the Bible or is finally taught what the Bible actually teaches, they can often feel like they've been duped. God can't do that to me. Who does he think he is? Right? You've known people probably who've experienced that. But the incredible thing about my Arab friend that I met in Israel is that he counted the cost before he ever trusted in Jesus. He had no choice but to count the cost. The consequences he knew would fall on him immediately and it could have required his very life and in many ways it actually did. But he believes that his decision was worth every single sacrifice and hardship he's gone through. It's remarkable. Now, the, the wonderful thing is that Jesus doesn't want us to be ignorant of the price that people pay when they follow him, so he's upfront about it. He doesn't dupe people. Jesus doesn't dupe people. He tells you what to expect. He's clear about the demands that God makes on his disciples. And I think that's merciful of him, don't you? He forces no one into a relationship with them and then discloses other things later. Sure, he he places obligations on his disciples, but only after a full disclosure. And that is what we're going to be learning about today, is this full disclosure on following Jesus. So if you would, turn with me to Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. If you're reading from the Bible that you found in the back of the seat in front of you, it's on page 874, just to make it easy. I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to pray. So Luke 14, 25 through 35, hear the word of the Lord. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first to deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes after him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. I don't take, Father, take it easy or casual when I say this is the word of the Lord. I confess this to you because I do not want to mishandle your word. I confess that I want to handle it well. And I pray that those who hear today will hear your words and respond, not because of something miraculous that I have done, but because this word that we read has power because it is God's God-breathed words. It is your word. So may you impact people's hearts, including my own, by your Holy Spirit. May you be glorified. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Now, um, when I'm speaking publicly like this, uh, I try to be very cautious with my words and the way that I word things. And if I'm wondering if I might be some, saying something that, uh, that goes too far or if I feel like it could be something that, um, that I, where I could be speaking too harshly, I will often ask my wife, Carissa, uh, what she thinks. And if I had said what Jesus said in this scripture, Carissa would have been like, nope, you're going to find a different way to say that, all right? <laughs> because this is a difficult Wording. This is a difficult way that Jesus says what he's trying to get across. But Jesus said it, so it's important for us to understand the way that he meant for us to understand it. So that's what we're going to do today. And as usual, I have a biblical truth to try to summarize this passage up into one brief sentence so that you have something to take away with you. And then we're going to walk through Jesus' word together as we get down into the finer details. So the biblical truth today is this. Following Jesus requires the disciples' entire life. Following Jesus requires the disciples' entire life. The disciple of Jesus must take 
everything they have and everything they are and submit it to God. And the disciples are not just those 12 men, they are everybody who follows Jesus and all Christians are supposed to be disciples of Jesus Christ. So make no mistake, this counts you. That is, a, that is quite the obligation to give everything you have and everything you are. It's a huge price to pay and it is really costly. Now I'm going to clarify one misunderstanding that could easily come about by the language that we're using today. And I'm only gonna say this once, so this is just my caveat on the sermon, so listen up. There will be a lot of talk today about the cost of following Jesus. But there's a big difference between Christ's free gift of salvation from sin and death and the cost of following Jesus. Salvation from sin and death is a gift from God and it is completely and utterly a matter of grace. It is free, we cannot buy, we cannot earn it. There's nothing we can do except to be recipients of God's salvation that he gives us. But when you hear the word cost in reference to following Jesus, please understand this word cost in the way that we understand the definition that is kind of a secondary definition, the consequence of following Jesus, the resulting circumstances that naturally flow from following Jesus. And there are huge consequences to following Jesus. But you'll soon find out that the consequences need not be a surprise, and the consequences are absolutely worth following Jesus. And with that said, following Jesus requires the disciples entire life. It is costly. And we have three supporting truths to dig down deeper into this passage. We're going to start with number one. Following Jesus requires loving God more than our beloved family and friends. Following Jesus requires loving God more than our beloved family and friends. But you might think, hold up one second. Didn't Jesus say that we have to hate them to be his disciple? Yes and no, and I'll explain that. Yes, those are the words he used. If, if we didn't apply what Jesus knew we, he needed, you need to understand this with some nuance is what I'm trying to say. It would seem that Jesus is asking us, if we take this literally, to break the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother, and then beyond that to the rest of our family and friends. But Jesus is not asking us to literally hate our family members. And the explanation is much simpler than you might think. In those days, the word hate did not mean or didn't always mean what we think it means. Remember, we have to consider that language changes over time and translation from one language to another isn't always obvious. But in that Semitic language, the word hate often has a meaning of to prefer over another. Does that make sense? To prefer over another. It's easy to see when you look at other passages that mean hate in the same way as this passage. So look at Malachi 1, verses 2 through 3. It'll be up on the screen. This is God talking. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. 
He doesn't actually hate Esau. If you know the story, God preferred Jacob's offering over Esau's offering. That's what is meant by hated. And in Genesis 29, verses 30 through 31, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, right? And when the Lord saw that Leah was what? Hated. He opened her womb. In both of these cases, the word hate is used in a way to show preference, preferring over someone or something else. Not the kind of hate that we associate with the meaning in our language, although sometimes that word hate does actually mean what we think it means, but it has a double meaning like many other words we have. Most importantly, and what clarifies this all up, is that the Apostle Matthew, when he wrote on the same teaching that Jesus uh, taught here in Luke, Matthew 10, 37, he uses a different wording that makes it very clear. This is what Matthew wrote. Whoever loves father and mother more than me, or whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The same lesson. Maybe... Matthew asked his wife to proofread, and Luke didn't. Jesus isn't asking us to hate his, our family. He's asking us to give him preference, the place of first importance, primacy as, his, as our creator. And that is his rightful place as our creator. This is not an ego trip from God to ask this of us. It's the rightful ordering of how things work in the world that God created. God first, and then everything else flows from there, right? And what we need to realize is that the correct prioritization of our love, first to God and then anything else, helps us to love others and ourselves better. That's the surprising thing, is that if we love God First, it helps us to love others better. It's the same principle that we see in Matthew 6, 33, where Jesus teaches about anxiety. Let me clear this up. Don't worry about the things that you're going to wear or eat. Seek first the kingdom, and all of those things will be added to you. Okay? In the same way, love God first, and loving everyone else will be added to you. It's the same principle. When we love God first, we will seek to glory in Jesus over our own glory, which means that God will be glorified in our friendships, in our marriages, in our relationship to our parents, and in the parenting of our children. If we love God first, we'll begin to interact with others in righteousness, We'll speak the truth, but we'll do it in love. We'll be more generous. We'll be less judgmental. We'll be more gracious when our family fails us. We will delight in the presence of our friends. We'll listen more intently, and we will react to difficult people with more patience. To put it as clearly as possible, when we love God first, we will treat others the way that God has treated us. With a deep and sincere love, 
in the truest sense of the word. Following Jesus requires loving God more than our beloved family and friends. So let's read verse 27 again, and we're going to continue moving on. After Jesus tells us that we must first love him to be his disciples, this is what he says in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Little side note, he hasn't even gone to the cross yet. And he's teaching people to bear their own cross. Our second supporting truth is this. Number two, following Jesus requires the acceptance of suffering. Following Jesus requires the acceptance of suffering. This is the meaning of bearing your own cross to be a disciple of Jesus. We will suffer and we need to accept that. And if this is a new concept for you, I'll address you first. Because this is one of the most important lessons you will learn in the, for the strength of your faith from now moving forward. It is an incredibly important lesson. Suffering is a part of being a disciple of Jesus. Expect it. And your faith won't be broadsided when it comes. Whether it's the daily suffering that accompanies with denying yourself certain pleasures for the sake of loving God and others well. Denying yourself is a form of suffering. It hurts. And it's part of the Christian life. Whether it's the suffering of losing friends because you can't allow yourself to be, uh, to continue on in the way that you previously lived before Jesus was your king. Or whether it's the suffering, the ultimate suffering of death that many people face as martyrs in other parts of the world and in history and sometimes in our own country, including most of the apostles almost all of the apostles, and Jesus himself. Suffering is a normal part of being a Christian. And we have to accept that suffering until the day Jesus returns or we go to be with him. Now, that doesn't mean that we should just invite suffering. I've seen that mistake made before. Like some sort of masochism or some sort of paying penance like we have to punish ourselves. But the reason that's not the case is because Christ has taken that sort of punishment for us on the cross and in his death. So we never need to take that kind of punishment upon ourselves. Self-inflicted, purposeful punishment. It just means that following Jesus in a broken world, full of sin, where everything around us is twisted from the way that God created it when he called it good, in a world like that, the person who follows Christ will naturally experience resistance in the form of suffering. Because the way of Christ goes against the way the world works right now. And we must take up that burden, that cross, and follow Jesus because even Jesus, the Son of God, was not exempt from suffering. 
Suffering is a part of following Jesus as he redeems all of creation. So we've addressed that maybe you haven't heard that before about suffering. Maybe this isn't the first time that you've heard that Christians must endure suffering. And there are two types of you out there. Some of you are well acquainted with that suffering. And if that is you, this is a call to continue. Jesus knew that this would happen, and he's right there with you by his spirit. But there's a second person in that category that you, maybe you know as a Christian you will experience suffering, but you haven't yet, maybe you don't even realize it, but you haven't yet experienced deep suffering. If that's you, let me caution you with a story. I have a very close friend, a friend who pointed me initially in my search to understand Jesus better. He's the friend who pointed me to the framework in which I see and teach Christianity, the Reformation theology. He knew all about how Christ calls us to suffer. He knew that we were taught that we have to live as living sacrifices to worship God. But when the rubber met the road and he lost his business and there was illness in his family and he came across struggles other than that in his family, God didn't fit into the tidy little box that he had made for God by, the, uh, by his life experience that he had experienced so far. He had a deep crisis of faith. He had a theological, a correct theological understanding of suffering in his mind, and he had suffered in his life. He certainly had. But the experience of deep suffering that required all of his life, when it came to that, he was rocked to the core. He realized that even though he assented to a healthy list of doctrines, he still functionally believed that God would only allow mostly good things to happen to him if he was faithful. But in his own words, and I thought this was a keen observation, he said, I realize now that deep down, I actually believed a prosperity gospel even though I said I didn't believe in that sort of thing. And he, my friends and church family, could be any one of us. And I think that this friend of mine is back, or he's on the path back to Jesus. He's in process. But I cannot overstate the kind of turmoil that he experienced by being familiar with sound doctrine, but being surprised by the deep suffering that he experienced when it upended his life. We can sometimes get the false idea that God is preventing our suffering because of our faith. When God has only just begun to refine our faith with the fire of suffering. It's a hard truth, but God makes us stronger by experiencing suffering. 
The warning for those of us who have been Christians for years is to beware that belief, the belief that you have somehow met the quota on suffering in your life. And I'm preaching to myself here. Persevere to the end. And Christ has a great reward for you on the day of reckoning. Persevere through suffering. Bear your cross and follow Jesus into that darkness because the light of his glory and the light of his grace will lead you all the way. And he will lead you home where suffering will end forever. Let's continue. After Jesus gives us the jarring truth that we uh, should love God first before everything else and that we must accept suffering to be his disciple, he gives us two parables to accompany this lesson. The first is about building a tower in verses 28 through 30. This is what he says. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And then again, Jesus continues with a second parable immediately after that one with the same purpose, verses 31 through 32. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So you have a, a tower builder and you have a king going into battle against a larger kingdom. Both are about counting the cost. And these are vivid pictures. And Jesus has one point he's trying to make with both, and this is where we receive our third supporting truth. Number three, following Jesus must not be a hasty decision. Following Jesus must not be a hasty decision. There is nothing casual about a decision to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In the same way that a person weighs the cost of building a tower, or in our modern sense, a a home or an addition to our house, we must count the cost before following Jesus. Because it will require everything we call our own. Are we ready for that cost? In the same way, a king must weigh the consequences of going to war with another kingdom that could quite possibly destroy his own. In that same way, we must weigh the consequences of following Jesus. Now, Jesus cautioned and instructed many people about this over the course of his ministry. The rich man in Matthew 10, the crowd at the Sermon on the Mount, and even in some ways in the parable of the sower. Following Jesus is costly. There are difficulties when we follow Jesus in a sinful world. We must weigh the cost. And as a matter of fact, these two parables end in a final statement that makes everything really clear. He's talked about bits and pieces of what we must give up and the counting of the cost, but, the, but this is what Jesus says 
at the end of these two final parables, he says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The cost will be renouncing all that you have. Everything that you have, you would have to give up. Give up the rights to. Up to your very last breath. It's an enormous price to pay. And I know this sermon is not light and easy. It's a heavy one. And I think that this is exactly what Jesus is trying to get across to us. But allow me right now, to do the math for you in this equation. Can I show you what is on both sides of this greater than, less than equation? On one side, if you follow Jesus, what we've learned so far is that there will be suffering in your life. There will be behaviors that you will have to give up. God will dictate where your money is spent. God will decide what you do with your sexuality. God will tell you to deny yourself. You will be required to honor your covenants even when it's hard. And God will require the use of any of your belongings at his own discretion. And God will ask you to order even your love after his design. That's, That's a lot. And that's on one side of the equation. But on the other side of this equation, God has given us every reason to accept these requirements with reckless abandon. The terms are plain as day and there's no deceit in his proposition. As a disciple of Jesus, this is what we gain when we renounce all that we have. Jesus has promised to end our suffering one day when he finally returns or we go to be with him. What we give up, he says that he will give back 100-fold in Mark 10. God himself will be your provider. For the disciple who receives Jesus and decides to follow him and has weighed the cost, sexuality is not our identity. It is even a factor in heaven. Denying ourselves allows us to love our loved ones better and more deeply. Difficult tasks, difficult things become worth the effort because of the glory and worthiness of God. Our belongings become just a part of God's vast storehouses. So every need you have will be met. Rightly ordering our love benefits everyone and there will be an eternity of peace for you forever. This is what we gain when we give up everything. Church, If it was just a matter of investment alone, it makes complete sense to give up your whole life on earth for the sake of God's glory. But it is not just a matter of investment, church. It's a matter of worthiness and worship. God made the world to work this way, and the decision to follow Jesus is a submission to the way that the Creator ordered everything. Loving anything anything before God 
And not giving up and renouncing everything that we have is like, it's like putting the batteries of life in backwards. It just doesn't work. That's why we have a world that's full of sin. That's why we have all of these things that happen that are so atrocious when it comes to looking at the glory of Jesus Christ. It's because people have not done this, starting with Adam and Eve. The decision to become a disciple of Jesus is only hard because it goes against all of our fleshly desires. But even as a matter of logic, it makes sense to give up your entire life this side of heaven to gain everything in Jesus Christ forever. And Jesus gives us one final parable to drive home his lesson. So let's end by explaining how salt fits into the picture because it kind of looks like a diversion from his conversation, but it's not. I'm going to read verses 34 through 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. And when Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear, that's Jesus telling us to chew on that thought for a little while. What does salt have to do with the cost of following Jesus? Matthew 5.13 clears up what the salt represents. He writes, you are the salt of the world. So if we are the salt, what does it mean if we lose our saltiness? If we decide to follow Jesus and take up that identity, to take up that life, but along the way we decide we don't want to renounce everything that we have or we no longer want to incur the cost of discipleship, then we have lost our saltiness. We have lost the trait that is distinctive to Christians, Christ followers, disciples of Jesus. And how can our saltiness be restored? I'll tell you what, it would take a miracle for it to be restored. And if it's not restored, then we are of no use to anyone, not even the manure pile. Church, this is why following Jesus should not be a hasty decision. The purpose for which we were made, the distinctive trait that Christ followers have as disciples of Jesus is gone if we decide the price is too high to pay after deciding to follow him. And it's near impossible for salt to have its saltiness restored. Now, J.C. Ryle, who we've quoted many times, comments on this parable best, so I'm just going to read him. No man, be it remembered, is in so dangerous a state as he who has once known the truth and professed to love it and has afterwards fallen away from his profession and gone back to the world. 
You can tell such a man nothing that he does not know. You can show him no doctrine that he has not heard. He has not sinned in ignorance like many. He has gone away from Christ with his eyes open. He has sinned against a known and not an unknown God. His case is well near desperate. All things are possible with God, yet it is written, it is impossible for those who are once enlightened if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. Ryle right there is quoting Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 at the end. Church, I am I'm giving this warning to you and to me. Not to those who have yet to put their faith in Christ. So listen closely. If you find yourself counted among those who wanted the benefits of following Christ, but have decided that following Christ is not worth the cost, if you have turned away from the good news of Jesus for your previous lifestyle, going after yourself or some other philosophy of life, you are the salt that has lost its saltiness. You are like the man who has started to build his tower but realized he didn't have enough to go beyond the foundation. You are like the king that went into battle against twice as many soldiers and lost all his men in the war. You have been defeated. And I hate to say it, but you're in a pitiful position. But I have good news for you. Multiple times in Scripture, we see Jesus Christ moved at the pitiful state of men and women. He was moved with compassion and love for these people. And he did the impossible. He healed them. All hope is not yet lost. Recognize that Jesus is worth the loss and repent and follow him. Remember the equation that, we, that, that shows us that all that we lose now is nothing compared to what we gain in eternity. But this message, this scripture, is not just a warning for Christians. It's a warning for those who are currently counting the cost. He doesn't say, you know what, it's, it just don't follow me because it's not worth it. He never says that, right? He says specifically, count the cost. If it was too hard or not worth it, Jesus has proven his transparency enough that he would have told us if it was not worth it. He's an honest king. He will not give you the illusion that following him is a walk in the park. Being a disciple is definitely not for the faint-hearted. But 
along with this whole section of warning us to assess our level of devotion should we follow Christ, this parable, this lesson is followed by new lessons that are a delightful exploration of God's devotion to us. I'm serious. Open your Bibles. Open your Bibles to this passage. Go ahead, do it right now. If, you, if you've closed your Bible, open up to Luke 15. We're going to be hearing about these parables in the next few weeks. But look at Luke 15. Just look at the subheadings there. Jesus will find his lost sheep. That's you. That's me. He will rejoice over his lost coin when he finds it. That's also you. That's also me. And the Father always welcomes home his prodigal son. Always. So whether you are a lost sheep or a son who's wrongly left his father's home to pursue the world, or a follower struggling through the suffering that you did not realize would be so deep, Christ comes after you. He is devoted to you. He, this is not some one-sided relationship that we have with God where he asks everything of us and does not give us of himself in return. He has given everything to be devoted to us. We must recognize this. We do not have a God who is hard on us. He's experienced everything he wants us to go through or knows that we will go through. God is devoted to you. He is the treasure that made Paul say this in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's our lesson summed up in one short paragraph from Paul. Church, I know this has been a difficult sermon to hear, but I hope that you're able to see the joy if we are to accept God's proposition to us today. Following Jesus will require the disciples' entire life. Paul realized it. Count the cost. Salvation is free. The cost of following Jesus is high. 
But gaining Christ, church, is of surpassing worth compared to what's lost. If you have considered the cost today, if you have been weighing following Jesus and you have decided that this eternity of peace with God is worth giving up what you have today, please come and speak with me afterwards. I will be right up here. I would love to share with you about the life of a follower of Jesus. And I would love to walk with you in that process. Let's pray. Father God, you speak hard words to us sometimes. You speak difficult lessons to us at times. But all of your hard sayings and all of your difficult passages and lessons They seek to teach us something that every single one of us need to know for the betterment of our life and for the betterment of the lives around us. So Father, teach us how to be followers of Jesus. Teach us that when we are at the point where it feels like we are going to suffer for giving up our old way of life or suffer because of somebody who is punishing us for our way of life. Lord, help us to see that it is worth the cost that we pay. Up to even what the apostles experienced in their martyrdom. In a society like ours where so often it feels like our faith is not tested in the way that some of our friends in other countries are tested. Lord, prove our faith to be true and lasting to the end. We love you, O triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May you be glorified in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.